From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm Stella Bugby, editor-in-chief of The Cut. For the next two weeks, I'm going to be filling in for Molly. She's on assignment for the magazine. And this is a good excuse for me to talk to some women I admire for our series, How I Get It Done. If you're not familiar, it's about ambitious women and how they live. How they deal with their inboxes, people's feelings, their grocery shopping, their morning routines. What do they know that we don't? What do they do that we can steal? It's part advice column, part love letter, part voyeurism. This week, I'm talking to the cook and food writer Allison Roman. I find myself reaching for Allison's cookbook all the time. Because the food is delicious, yes, and it's easy to make, yes, but also because Allison is funny and fun. Her recipes have names like shrimp in the shell with garlic and probably too much butter. An official step in that recipe is to pluck a hot shrimp out of the skillet, rip it apart, and suck the juices out of its head. In the picture, the shrimp are piled on a plate next to a can of Modelo beer. It doesn't look precious or perfectly styled. It looks like something you want to dig into and eat right away, messily. That's the kind of food Allison loves to make. And it's the kind of food a lot of people love to eat, too. Allison's first book, Dining In, was a huge success. These days, she writes about food for the New York Times, and she's got a second cookbook coming out in the fall. And her recipes have made her sort of an internet sensation. People fall in love with her food. They develop opinions about it, and sometimes they get pissed off about it, too. It feels personal to them. Allison says she found her distinctive cooking style while she was working at Bon Appetit. After years as a pastry chef in high-end restaurant kitchens, she'd landed a job at Bon Appetit as a recipe tester. And in the beginning, the stuff she was making was very different from what I now think of as Allison Roman food. One of the first stories that I did was about pie. And one of the pies was like this hilariously complicated pie with plums. It was like you made a crust and then you made this filling that had to set and chill. And then you had to roast plums and then you had to put the plums on top of the filling and stack them just so. So it looked really dramatic and beautiful. And I had a vision for this pie and it was going to be so cool and impressive. And it was cool and impressive. But it was also so complicated and not one human on the planet would make it. Like, I I know that now. And at the time, I think what I was trying to do was showcase what I could do and impress people and entice people to want to make something because it looked cool and impressive. And now I realize that is not the way to get somebody to cook something. And kind of grappling with that. I think that also comes from working in a restaurant and me feeling insecure that my friends in the restaurant were going to think that I was making home-cooked food, which is less cool than restaurant food and less impressive. And, you know, there's a lot of insecurity about coming from that place. But my instincts have shifted dramatically since I first began. I think that the food that I grew up idolizing, like the Martha Stewart way, sounds like a pie like you just described. It is, yes. So, there seems to be like a real cultural break with what you're saying, and maybe it's generational, but I have found your cookbook and the new Bone app and, you know, Healthish and all these new websites to be much more of a way in. Mm-hmm. Did you have, like, what were your inspirations when you were growing up? Was it Martha? Was that where you were looking at? I didn't, like, open a Martha Stewart book until, like, seven years ago, maybe, honestly. I just... What did you think when you opened it? I was like, oh, this bitch is crazy. <laughs> and I was like, I... <laughs> I literally was just kind of like, no one's going to do that. Or rather, I'm not going to do that. And I think that there used to be a type of person that would, and they were your food friend or your your mom's best friend or your aunt or your mom or whoever, or your dad. And that was their thing. 
And they spent their time and their energy and their effort on these things. And that was sort of their identity. And now people can do a million other things and still have that desire to cook and to have people over and to do all those things. But it's not necessarily their identity. You have a very distinctive visual style as well as a distinctive taste in food and a sound to your writing. Where did the visual style you know, evolve from? Um, for me, I think it just came from being inundated with images and kind of reacting to that and thinking, like, I don't want to do that. Hmm. And I think that that is how I make a lot of my decisions. I feel like I know what I don't want before I know what I do want. I feel like that's pretty common, probably. But I feel like it was a reaction to food and cooking being depicted in a very serious or perfect way, sometimes serious, sometimes perfect, sometimes both, where you look at an image of of food and you're like, why am I in a dungeon? Like, why is why do I look like I'm in, like, you know, a castle in 18th century London? Or why does this look so—like, nobody's cooked here? Or why are there, like, a handful of blueberries scattered on this table? Like, why are they there? <laughs> and so I really wanted the food that I was putting in my books to look like my actual life, which— it does. So I cook all the food in the books. There's no food stylist. It's me just cooking the food. And I think that helps a lot. Just kind of, this is how the food should look. I'm actually cooking it. And if there's a messy thing on the counter, it's there for a reason, not because I like scattered a dusting of flour to make it look like I was cooking. Like I actually was cooking and that's why it's there. So I, I love food and I love your food. Thank you. Um, one of the reasons I was always afraid to go into food as like a life, Mm -hmm. is that I would eat all the time. Yeah. Do you eat all the time? Yeah, your fears are true. They are (laughs) correct. Um, Sometimes the first thing you eat in the morning is like a piece of cake because you have to try it or like a duck leg or, (laughs) you know, like rib roast. I don't know. It's like not always the first thing you want to eat in the morning. So it is kind of a constant eating, but you're constantly tasting. Like I feel like most people can relate to this when you're cooking Thanksgiving or, you know, a big meal and you're cooking all day. By the time you sit down, you're like, I just, I don't want to eat any of this. So take me through a typical day. Oh, God. Or do you have a typical day? I don't. I don't have a typical day. Because of the phase that I'm in right now, where I've just finished this cookbook, I I don't know what I'm—I feel like I'm a, a lost girl at sea. I don't know what, I'm gonna, what my days are going to look like. So when you're working on a cookbook, what's your process like? It is a crazy, all-over-the-place process. So— Basically, for a cookbook, I start by concept. Okay, what is this book about? And then I kind of work backwards from there of what food do I want to put in this book? And I draw up like a dream table of contents. And then I start cooking through those recipes. So I think of a title that sounds delicious to me. I'm like, I would eat that. I don't know what it is yet because I've never made it, but that sounds good. Can you give me an example of something like that? Um, Yeah, there's a dish in, in Nothing Fancy that's like a Dutch oven, like one pot chicken with caramelized lemon and dates. Mm. I was like, that sounds good. Never had it. Don't know. I just, the, those, I, that idea of like a kind of golden brown chicken, but like brazy and fall apart on the bottom. A little acid, like, a little yeah, sweetness. Yeah, a little like brothiness in the bottom. I was like, that sounds, I want to eat that right now. And kind so, of So you have that. an idea for like something like that. Do you immediately go out to the store and buy the ingredients? Like what, then what happens? No. So I will batch them. So I, I know, okay, I have a month and a half, two months to cook all these things or three months, however it works. And I cook probably anywhere from four to six days a week. For and, how many hours a day? Mm, depends. Sometimes two, sometimes seven, sometimes ten. Sometimes it's all weekends. Sometimes, it, you know, it kind of fits into my schedule. I like to have people over when I'm doing this, so I have somewhere for the food to go. In your own kitchen? 
in my own kitchen or if we're away for the weekend or something like that, like an I'm Airbnb. I'm like always available. Great. I will absolutely add you, <laughs> you to the roster. Yeah. It is, people honestly would get fatigued. They're like, I cannot come over and eating anymore. <laughs> um, but so I, I order groceries online. I go to the farmer's market. I go to the grocery store. I order stuff and I kind of have my to-do list in the way of like, I'm going to cook these five recipes today. And then are you tweaking as you go along? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes I have to cook things once and I'm like, that's great. Sometimes I have to cook things three times and decide it's actually not going to go in this book. It's not that good. And do you use the feedback from your people that you subject to your food? I do. But when you start to listen to so many other people about what your work should be, it becomes very muddied. And if I eat something and I'm like, fuck, that is so delicious and I cannot wait to eat the rest of this, then I I don't really feel like I need somebody else to weigh in on it. I think that when you're a writer, you think about who you're writing for. Do you ever mm-hmm. think about like who your ideal taster, cook type of person, reader would be? For me, the end goal has always been to get as many people cooking as humanly possible. Why? Because cooking is really fun and it's really empowering and it's just like a very pure act. And I think that we, I don't know, I feel like there are very few things in this world that we can participate in that we have control over. For me, it's probably originates with control, which is probably why I cook in the first place. Um, but that we can control that don't involve other people or technology or the internet. And when you make something, you eat it and it's good. That is a very pure sort of life cycle. There's no drama. There's no, I don't know. It's an uncomplicated ritual. And it's like a beautiful thing that you can do that is not riddled with like, is it good? Is it bad? Can we rip it apart? Like, it's just food and it should be enjoyed. And I think that it's sacred for that reason. And yet your recipes do come under a tremendous amount of scrutiny. <laughs> exactly. That, I mean, especially you on the internet. You right? would think that it is just You've made some a serious thing. controversies happen. I have, yeah. Do you want to tell me a bit about that experience? Oh, Stella, yeah. Um, so you may be familiar with the cookies. Um, in my first cookbook, <laughs> there was a recipe for a salted butter chocolate chunk shortbread cookie. And I believe the cut actually had a exactly, controversy yes, with you exactly. about this cookie. So thank you for coming on despite our, uh, our no, beef. No, <laughs> I do not turn away in the face of controversy. I lean into it. Um, and this recipe became really popular on the internet. I did nothing to proliferate this. I did not champion it. It just kind of took off and people really loved it and they started baking it. And it was great. Like, what could be bad about that? It's a cookie. It's like a six-ingredient. It's like salt and butter and chocolate. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's flour. literally just yeah. a lovely thing that exists in the world. It is, it is nice. It is a cookie. And the amount of popularity and praise was so beautiful and overwhelming until it wasn't. Because then people started to be like, is it even that good? But is it good? <laughs> like, people love it, but do they? It's like, oh, my God. So I think that that is when you know you've made it. Um is when people are when people hate giving your you chocolate shit about cookies. a cookie. Yeah. <laughs> like, there was another article on Food 52 that was like, is it, is it even a shortbread that doesn't have powdered sugar? And I was like, listen, I considered adding powdered sugar, but I didn't want a seventh ingredient. And it's not a shortbread in that sense. It's a shortbread in this sense. And if you look up the classic shortbread recipe, it actually doesn't have powdered sugar. Like, I have thought all of that through. But again, it's... But the- so, But how did that feel? Like, so it must have felt really good to get all that praise... And yeah. think, oh, my God, I made a hit. Yeah. And then how did the backlash actually feel? It felt really bad. It felt really, really bad because I feel like people were trying to contribute to a conversation that didn't need to happen. And to my earlier point about 
food and cooking and baking just being like one of the last nice things we have on this planet that is just a pure, enjoyable thing. People were trying to turn it into something negative and just for the sake of the but com- how did you mitigate your emotions about that? Like I, I mm-hmm. having been, you know, on the other end of mm-hmm. controversy, let's say on the cut, like those things you internal, I internalize them. I'll just say totally. I internalize them for weeks and months. It's very hard for me to process and externalize. How did you yeah. kind of work through it? Like I know you answered a lot of your critics and you did not back down. Mm-hmm. Like what was going through your mind in those moments? Well, for that one, it was it was different because I didn't actually think there was criticism to be had. And I felt prepared to like answer things. And in retrospect, I feel like I can be maybe a little too fiery or responsive, and I, I should maybe not. I don't know if I should give in to those impulses, that which is to argue or to kind of answer or justify. If somebody cooks something and they're like, I didn't like it, not for me, great. That's totally fine. And I have nothing to say to you, and I will never try to argue differently. But if you come at me questioning, like, the integrity of my development process or the origins of something or my intentions, that's when I take it really personally because I care very deeply. Were you always like this? Oh, yeah. Even as a child? Whole life. Yeah. I'm like <laughs> this in every facet of my life, 100%. I mean, it sounds like you're pretty confident in your own ideas about what tastes good to you, what mm-hmm. makes sense to you. Was that something you started this process with? Absolutely not. No. And even sometimes still, with pretty much everything other than food, I question and I rip it apart and it's terrible. Coming up after the break, Allison and I learn to embrace our inner control freaks. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays. This week, I'm talking with Allison Roman. In the last few years, Allison has become a major presence in the food world. Her recipes go viral, her Instagram followers adore her. She makes it look fun, but it hasn't always been easy, something she learned coming up through restaurant kitchens. People are so busy that they're not going to go out of their way to be like, oh, let me teach you how to do this thing. You have to observe and you have to learn and you have to watch and you kind of have to teach yourself and you kind of have to ask, I want to do that job. I want to do that thing. If there's an opening, let me have it. Mm. And that is sort of like restaurant culture and restaurant mentality that I took with me outside of restaurants. Is there anybody that you look up to and think, oh, gosh, if I could have that career or if I could, you know, just make a recipe as iconic as... X. Like, is there anybody like that? You don't have to admit who it is. <laughs> um, yeah, there's definitely, I think, a hodgepodge of qualities from different people. There's not one person that I'm striving to emulate or whose career path I feel like I am on or have been on or want to be on, which makes things challenging but also fun. But it became hard because this is like a new development also Because for a while, all I wanted to do was get a job at a restaurant. And then all I wanted to do was move to New York. And then all I wanted to do was, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I think that that's where we find ourselves at some point in our lives, where we reach a point where we're like, oh, I've done all the things that I knew I wanted. And now I'm at the place where I don't actually know what I want. I know I want to keep going in some direction. But that's part of doing something new is that there's not a roadmap and there's not like, oh, I'm just going to ask this person how they did that. I feel exactly the same way. Yeah. So what do you do? Um, do I, you have like an existential crisis at yeah, that point? Yeah. I had a really tough few months actually this past year. I, As I was working through that second book, I was just like, what am I doing? Where Where is this going? And I had to kind of like recalibrate and be like, okay, I need to make time to answer that question. And did you? Uh, no, but I think that 
understanding that like where I'm at right now is okay, actually. And if I take stock of all the things that I do have, which is so much that I'm actually really happy and that'll probably last for like five minutes and then I'll be like, <laughs> I need more. But I think we don't really take time to acknowledge the things that we have accomplished when we've achieved that level of like, okay, well now what? Because it's that do goal you, that propels us. Do you think you're, this is like a question I'm projecting, but yeah. do, you th- <laughs> do you think that you're addicted to that adrenaline feeling of producing a new thing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like that's... Does it scare you to step off the treadmill? 100%. Even even yesterday when I was in my publisher's office and we were looking at the manuscript, she's like, it's going to the printer on Tuesday. She's like, I don't need anything else from you. <laughs> And I was like, oh, great, what a relief. And on my way home, I was like, well, if I'm not working on that, what am I doing? And then I started firing off all these emails to people being like, hey, we should connect on this thing. And hey, we should have a meeting about doing something X, Y, and Z. And it's like, oh, my God, what if I just took the rest of that day to be proud of myself for finishing a book? (laughs) Um, But yeah, but I do think, and this is something that I talk about with my therapist a lot, of using that, my anxiety and my whatever you want to call it as a way to... I would call it drive. Yeah, drive to to do more. And it's like a thing that I think people who have it, I'm projecting, um, <laughs> that allows us to achieve those things. But I complain about it. Um, you mentioned before about food being about control. Mm-hmm. At what point did you come to that realization? And oh. was that through therapy? Um, less so through therapy, more so through be- getting older and just realizing... Um, The way that I interact with food, especially as it relates to other people. And like if you were to have me over to your house, I would feel deeply uncomfortable if I didn't have something to do. Mm -hmm. I would be like, what can I do? Can I help? Can you you want me to do something? And it's not because I need to control the food, but it's like I need to like control the what it is that I'm doing or something. And and that's Do people ever tell you you need to chill? (laughs) Yeah. All the time. (laughs) And how does that feel? Like what do you what's your reaction? People love to be told to chill out. It's like our (laughs) favorite thing. Yeah. Or like relax. Oh, we love it. Um I remember actually growing up, my grandmother was the same way and she would just she wasn't a great cook or anything, but my dad would be like, Mom, just sit down. She's like, Oh, I can't sit down. I can't sit down. And that I'm her. That is me now. I'm coming to the place in my life where I'm like I'm not going to calm down and stop telling me to calm down. Yeah, like stop telling me to calm down. Yeah, or like, I'm okay with just being the person who's going a little crazy all the time. Yeah, I'm not a chill person. Right. I will never be a chill person. So stop telling me to chill out. That's not going to happen. Right. But the control thing is weird, and I think that it occurred to me. I kind of had like an epiphany. I was like, oh, I need to be in control of all the situations in my life. And that's a really easy way for me to do it in the same way when we get a haircut or it's like, should I get bangs? You know, it's like, you need to control something right now. I can control that. I really like this thread, by the way. I really like, I really love that we've gone from talking about recipe development to like control. Same. Yeah. Yeah. So part of releasing a recipe is like releasing control. Like you had the stew and you released it and you lost control of that conversation. I did. I did. It kind of took on a life of its own. And that's actually really interesting. Well, actually, for anyone who is not aware of the stew, maybe uh, explain the stew. So the stew is a recipe that I published in the New York Times in October of 2018. And it is a spiced chickpea stew. There's chickpeas, there's garlic, there's ginger, coconut milk, turmeric, leafy greens. And uh, it became as popular, if not more popular than the cookies. And That was a real trip to me because that is like a more complicated, not even that complicated, but it it was less recognizable, more, 
It's an like, odd stew. Yeah, it's just yeah. like a pot of brown, like, or I guess they're golden yellow chickpeas. And people just like went absolutely crazy for it. And I, and I, I will say in both of these cases, I, I like feed the flames and I fa- fan the flames, feed the flames. I feed them. I think you can fan and feed. Great. Well, I'm doing both. Um, by, you know, if somebody's making it, I repost it or I share it and I encourage people. And I think when somebody else sees something, somebody doing something, you want to do it too, if it looks good anyway. But I also think part of it is that the recipe works and pe- it was delicious, whatever. And then there was backlash with the stew. What was the backlash? The backlash was, is it even a stew? <laughs> is it a stew? There was like an absolute garbage piece written by somebody that was like, if people are, this is something that I want to talk about, actually. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> so I think when it comes to criticism, I accept it and I take it, especially if it, in regards to something not working. If I publish a recipe and it doesn't work, I am mortified. And it's happened before. It'll probably happen again. And I am so sorry to anyone who's ever cooked something that didn't work. That was my fault. But part of why I love making recipes, and this kind of ties into that control thing, is that I make something and publish it the way that I would want to eat it or cook it. And then what I often like to do is say, if you don't like spiciness, take out the chili flake. If you don't have kale, use mustard greens. If you are vegan, take out the yogurt, et cetera. I want you to feel in control as well. I don't I don't want to be told what to do. I'm pretty sure you don't either. So if you can read something, be inspired to cook it, but also know that I can change it based on my preferences. That, to me, is the best thing about cooking and why we cook and why I want you to cook. So this person had started to observe that a lot of people that were making the stew were putting their own spin on it. They were saying, oh, I made the stew, but I used Swiss chard instead of kale, or I made it vegan, or I used half the can of coconut milk, or I tripled the amount of ginger, or whatever. I love it. It's great. So this person who wrote the article was like, if the stew is so good, why are people doing it differently? Like, if it's such a good recipe, why are people making changes to it? And I was just like, oh, my God. Who paid you to write this? <laughs> I'll pay you double to not write it because it's garbage. Because that's not actually an interesting thought. I think as a cook, part of the joy is to adapt and twist and make it your own and feel empowered and connected to the recipe writer like you're having a conversation. Not like this is the stew and it's the only way to make it. If you don't do it this way, you're stupid. So that really got me fired up. And I responded to that as well. And I had a friend be like, you know, you shouldn't really respond to all these like negative people. Da, 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 da. And I was like, you think I'm responding to all of them? <laughs> I respond to a tenth of negativity. Do you feel better afterward? Um, with that instance, kind of. People are really supportive. I think it's like watching like a train wreck when they're like, oh, Allison's upset. <laughs> um, but ultimately, no. And I think that's why that's the last time that I've clapped back, if you will. Um, um, but have there been opportunities since? Oh, yeah. There's always opportunities. I think any person who puts themselves on the internet, there's an opportunity. And sometimes it's fun to just kind of respond to somebody, especially if you know it's, like, not rooted in reality. But most of the time, you kind of have to protect yourself and just be like, I'm not going to even... I don't read the comments ever about mm-hmm. anything because I know they would just destroy me. I'm not strong enough for that. Mm-hmm. Fragile. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, The best piece of advice I've ever been given is from a a woman who was my editor when I first started working at Bon Appetit. She's now one of my very close friends. Um, I remember I had started writing more or wanting to write more. And so the magazine was kind of just like, if you want to write more, just pitch the website because who cares about the website? Yeah, a different time 
And um, so she was in charge of fielding all of my, like, very awful pitches. And one of them was like, I want to teach people how to ferment cucumber at home or something. I don't know, something dumb about fermenting. And she's like, okay, don't take this the wrong way, but who cares? (laughs) And I was like, shit, that is so harsh, like way harsh, Ty. But she's like, I don't mean it in the way of like, who cares to be rude, but you have to understand when you're pitching something, you have to ask yourself, who cares? Who's reading this and who cares about it? And at the time, you know, maybe three people cared about that. And she was in the business of growing a website and understood that that was an important question to ask yourself when you were writing for the internet. And I think that that is advice that anyone could take at any point. If you're at a dinner party and you're about to say something out loud or if you're writing an article or putting a recipe in a book or whatever, you have to ask yourself, who cares? And if sometimes the answer is just, I care. And that should be enough. But at that time, even, I didn't even really care. Right. So, like, why would I publish it? And so I always like to say, who cares? That's it for this week's show. I'll be filling in for Molly again next week. See you next Tuesday. Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by me, Stella Bugby, and Lynn Levy. Mixing by Jonathan Roberts. Our music is by Emma Munger and Haley Shaw. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvan Esso. That's Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarley, and Alexandra Sousermonic. If you want to support The Cut's work on and off the mic, you can do that by subscribing to newyorkmag.com. Just go to thecut.com slash subscribe. That's thecut.com slash subscribe. We'd really appreciate it. Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.